another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, Jody. How are you? I'm all right. You sounded like you were dying there for a second with with the intro, but... (laughs) Well, the idea behind that is based on a listener request that we got today. What were we talking about? Well, this comes from listener Justin Berner. Now, Jody, let me ask you, have you ever had or received one of those songs that seems to mix itself? Yes. When you don't really have to put a whole lot of effort into it? Yep. And why do you suppose that is? The arrangement kicked ass. Yeah. That's a simple answer right there. The arrangement kicked ass. Right. And that brings us to the request from Justin here. He has a how does an arrangement impact a mix? A very valid question. Absolutely. And I think both you and I feel that it's everything, right? Unless you're going to fight a mix here and try to make it work. But if you have a good arrangement. You won't have to hammer it into submission. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so but we talked about in the past where like arrangers used to be there where they would write parts for certain instruments and that in an orchestral setting. That's not really what we're talking about here. So when we're talking about arrangement here, Jody, mm-hmm. what what are we really talking about? That's a big can of worms, isn't it? It is. There's yeah. a couple of factors to all of this. And part of it is the song having a natural flow between sections the Mm -hmm. dynamics between those sections, the musical differences between those sections, and the type of instrumentation that you're using for all of the sections. So that's it. So so you just (laughs) think of that and then you're good, right? But let's take a little bit of a dive into those. So the first thing you said, there was like the dynamics between sections. Yep. You tell me if this is not what you're thinking about, but I'm not necessarily thinking about that there's it could be, but not necessarily like a, a loudness difference between the parts. It could be there. Let's say going from the verse to the chorus, like mm-hmm. there's something happening there, right? It could be a lesser instrumentation. It could be, let's say if you're doing guitar-based music, maybe one guitar drops out. Maybe both guitars drop out. Maybe it goes Are you to talking the in the verse or the chorus? Well, either way, right? Okay. That's usually would be in the verses, right, when mm-hmm. you drop out. There are changes there. So it, it would be like a dynamics difference there. So something else is happening. Is that how you see that as well? Or what are you thinking when you're thinking dynamics? Yes. The type and the amount of instrumentation between sections is part of the dynamic function of it. Right. Along with volume and how the energy is played in each section. Yeah. So in other words, there's a lot of moving parts to this, but there are. Yeah. But then when we're talking about musical differences as well. Mm-hmm. Now this can be obvious things like chord structure and stuff. I do actually see a lot and hear a lot of modern music where there's actually the same chord progression going through the entire track. Therein lies an interesting problem in terms of modern music because there is no change in the chord progression. Now it becomes heavily reliant on what you change out instrumentally speaking on the chord progression. What you add, what you subtract, what you change the sound for, etc. That becomes very, very important on distinguishing between a verse 
a pre-chorus, a chorus, a bridge, when you're using the same chord progression throughout the entire tune. Yeah, so it almost becomes an exercise in how to kind of keep something interesting, I think, at that point. Right? It has and to become an exercise in how to keep something interesting. Otherwise, <laughs> But the interesting part of that, though, I think, is as a caveat to that, I wonder how much people that aren't musicians really pay attention to that. Because I don't think they necessarily do. They might notice that something doesn't happen if the arrangement is good enough. It, it doesn't matter if the song structure is still G, E minor, C, and D. You know what I mean? Right. They won't be able to voice it. But yes. if you explain it to them, they will understand it. That's probably a very good way of putting that. Yeah. That brings up the other point then that there's different instrumentation there that instead of the drums might kick in or there's a different percussive loop that might happen or there's a different synth playing the main line or something, right? Mm -hmm. Where it obviously never mind what the vocal is doing differently because that, that would be the primary thing that people tend to listen to, right? That mm -hmm. in the groove. So the point of doing this is, again, just to kind of keep the listener's interest through a song where we have these little changes. So it's not just like the same thing going on and monotony thing. is a yeah. bad thing, generally speaking, if you right. want to keep somebody's interest. Yeah. And I think that on a little bit of a tangent here as well, so doing the height of the loudness wars mm -hmm. where everything was like heavily compressed and there was very little dynamics in tracks. That was one of the things that you noticed that, wow, this is really fatiguing to listen to. It's like there's there's no change, right? Right. There's a couple of metal bands that were really guilty of this. Uh, it's not it's, just metal bands. There's all kinds of people guilty of this. This is true, but that's what I'm thinking about when everything is just like, ah, <laughs> like three minutes. It's like, okay, cool, next track. Ah, you know, and I'm as big a metal fan as any, but that got boring real quick. I hear you. What are your experiences with this, right? I'm sure you've had stories to tell when it comes to arrangements and, and mixes and probably good and bad. Yes. In terms of one particular band that I was working with, I had to not necessarily plead, but lead by example by saying, hey, the arrangement of how your guitar player has written this song doesn't work. Okay. Let's change the arrangement such that the guitar part that is in the chorus works better underneath your verse and the guitar part in your verse works better inside your chorus. Oh, that's they, interesting. Yes. It was very backwards. The thing was they were both in the same key and the vocal melody worked over both sections for both parts. So were these more like riff based? Yes, they were riff based right. things to switch them around and then simplify the one that was now being the verse helped dramatically. It also helped in terms of making the arrangement happen so that the song would come across with more impact to it. Mm. And that is one of my favorite ones to actually talk about, mainly because all the pieces were there. They just weren't assembled in the right order. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that can that's happen. Saying it. And right. as producer, producing the track, I had to inform them of this. They didn't take it well to start, but once they got through it, 
and listened to the finished product, it was a very different story because then they were extremely happy with it. Yeah. What yeah, about you? Same thing. I think you mentioned something that I, want, I don't want to like go first. Like you're thinking as a producer. Mm-hmm. I think if you're the the type of artist or just person that likes to do everything by yourself, that's all very well and good. But sometimes having an outside influence just with a fresh perspective to go like, no, you, I think you got your sections swapped here, like in your case, right? Mm-hmm. You, you make this the course and how that can elevate. It can be a hard thing for an artist to hear that because you're so invested in what you've done. Yes. That it becomes like an ego thing where it's like, no, this is my part. Damn it. This is the way it's supposed to be. Reminding ourselves that we're there to serve the song. It's not about the cool part that Chris wrote for the verse, right? Yeah, it, it is. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. And the guitar player is always right. Exactly. Just to riff on what you're saying, the guitar player in one of the sessions had his brother sitting in the control room. Mm-hmm. And his brother is not a musical person. When the guitar player started complaining about something, I immediately turned to the brother and I said, I'm going to play both ways that it's been recorded now. You tell me which one has more impact. And? The brother chose the way that I was envisioning for the arrangement to happen. And the guitar player kind of sulked a little bit, understood that his brother not being the musician was more of like who would listen to it and was okay with it after that. Yeah. Yeah, so to answer your question, though, have I had the same thing? And yes, the first time, well, I, it was like a really like just eye-opening thing. Not, maybe that's not the right word, but it was one of those, like, oh, my God, this song is just, I don't have to do a whole lot. Mm-hmm. It was, I was mixing it for, for an artist. And the way that the track was, it was a relatively sparse track. That makes it easier to begin with, sure. but also it had enough impact where it didn't feel like a minimalistic song. So everything kind of came together. It really shone a light on the importance of the arrangement thing there. Because once you get all the parts sounding good, not only by themselves, but as a whole, your job's already done. Yeah, I've had other cases too, I, I don't want to bring them up, where there's like a real struggle because the artist has a vision of like, no, I want everything in the song and everything has to have the same matter of importance. And I need to hear this and I need to hear that. Sometimes you even get to a point where it's like, you know, I'll do what you want to do, but I don't want my name apart with this. You know? Right. So and that's it, an important aspect to it. Generally speaking, if you have more than, three parts (laughs) going at the same time that are all doing different things. That mix shouldn't be a democracy. There's a a level and an order of things that need importance. Now, if they repeat and you have multiple things going on, maybe in different sections of the song with the repeats, pull something out, push something else up. And on the next repeat, pull the thing you pushed up last time and push up something else so that you get that variety going on mm. to keep the yeah. listener's interest. But if you're constantly pounding everybody's ear hole with the same thing every single time, especially if you're cut and pasting, that's like my biggest bane to existence. I hate cut and paste. 
<laughs> yeah. If you're going to play it as a musician, play it. Play it every time. Make it slightly different every time you do it. That's the best way. Now, there are certain genres that don't work well with that. However, I still think those guys are going to be playing things through and then tweaking to get them to sound more similar-esque. I don't know. To me, cut and paste is just a terrible thing. That's the ultimate in lazy most of the time. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I share your view 99% of the time with that. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the element of the track, what sure. it is. The key word to all that is like it's slight differences. It's not like it's, oh, my God, that was completely different the second time you play the chorus, or it's how tight things are, rhythmically speaking. Those are really, really important. Also, with modern music especially, I think audiences have developed to a way where we're almost expect to hear this hyper-processed, perfect, polished thing. Oh, sure. Right? But that's not the same thing as playing it exactly the same no. and cut and pasting every time. Right. No, I, and I think that is especially noticeable when it comes to vocals, mm -hmm. right? If you have the same chorus and you just hear that, oh, I heard that exact same breath in the first chorus, right? It sounds the same. If you're an audience that you might not necessarily be able to tell exactly what it is, you will probably notice that it's something is lacking, I think. That's a lot of riffing and kind of going off topic here a little bit, but let's go into what we can do to avoid some of these things. One of those things that we can do, especially if there are too many ideas in a song arrangement, is to think, be okay with the fact that not every idea is going to add to the complete whole of the song. And mm -hmm. if you have somebody else mixing it, which if you're too close to it, it's probably a very good idea. <laughs> Yeah, They can it, give reasonable justifications for muting something out and removing it. Yeah. There's something. I'm going to do the first name drop here of this episode here. Okay. <laughs> but I remember hearing um, Tom Lord Algy talking about something in his thing, and he was going to get a track to mix. And the artist said, well, do you want me to add this track to it or add this part to it? paraphrasing here, he said, well, yours, sure, put it in there. If, if you don't put it in, how am I going to have something to mute? You know? <laughs> so the idea there is that don't be too precious with your ideas. So you have to kind of take a step back and think as a producer. You mentioned earlier, like a mix is not a democracy. Right. And psychologically, I think people can only focus on like three different things. You mentioned that as well. Having that in mind, works a lot for, for the arrangement where we have to really think about, well, what is the most important part of this? Well, that can be like getting rid of parts, like you said, that don't need to be there. Mm -hmm. And here is like the ego thing, I think, a lot for, for artists. If we're the ones writing everything, well, then you're fighting yourself a lot, right? Sure. Because you think, ooh, I have this great call and response line going on here. It's clashing a little bit with the vocal, but eh, it's a cool part. I need to have it there. Right? <laughs> right. It's not going to work. So, so getting rid of stuff. Don't be afraid to mute stuff. But there are other ways that, that we kind of go 
with that as well. So what, what are we not talking about here? The one like muting stuff is talking about layers and things. Well, you just mentioned it, layers. Right. And in terms of layers where you're creating a whole by using smaller individual parts, a good example of that, as we were discussing before hitting the record button, a song that I'm tracking right now, I've spent a good deal of time, I think it was about an hour to an hour and a half, just working on getting the bass sound dialed in before you even hitting record. Fleetwood Mac? You know? <laughs> no, it required wanting to get an appropriate bass sound that fit the concept and the vibe of the song for one, and two would fit inside the arrangement. The next day, working on getting guitar sounds just for chord hits that happen in the chorus. And in doing so, I naturally ended up making these guitar sounds a little bit darker than the main guitar sound that was going to be recorded afterwards, after the punchy hits that happened. Then so they were going to have a little bit more of a supportive role there. It's very much to be a supportive role, right. yeah. And they're actually all playing on the same rhythmic value as the main guitar line for the hits that the main guitar line does. Then the main guitar line, being a much brighter guitar, just folds in so nicely that everything becomes an automatic guitar sound, even though it has four layers to it. Rather than sounding like four different guitars, it almost sounds like one giant guitar with a little extra hits here and there in the middle of the sections. That's an arrangement concept by knowing how to create the sounds you're putting in there before you even get to the mix. Yeah. So you have to think all of these things through before you – well, you can as you're tracking, but – It's harder. You just need yeah. to know how to do it. Right. Again, you have to put your producer hat on and kind of have a vision for how this song is going to turn out in the long run. And it mm -hmm. could be very well that, oh, we need to add something to this. Like you mentioned again before we started recording here today, you had this part and you were actually doing like a really high supportive, I think you were playing like fourths or something. But just well, the main have guitar like hits machine. were power chords. Right. And then one of the layered guitar parts is the inversion of that but mm. at two octaves up. So instead right. of being the root on the bottom, the root is now on the top and you've got the fourth below it, which essentially is still the same as the fifth from the root up, but mm. it's the fourth down. Right. It's like creating all these parts. And when it comes to doing this, it's one thing like we're talking about here, just like layering stuff to create one hole to get a nice sound with that. Mm -hmm. It's not about having everything, throwing it out the wall and just have a billion ideas. Focusing on one thing that carries the song in that section, I think you're better off. That's when it comes to like parts and like layering stuff, whether that's something we frequently do, it's like with drums and things, right? Mm -hmm. Where we layer kicks just to have a certain impact or I like the transient of this and this one has the boom or whatever. Right. We do that to kind of enhance one thing. Right. Same thing with synths. You can't have yeah. your synth examples, which are Las Vegas on steroids, as mm -hmm. your entire sound on a song along with everything else. You have to think very clearly as to where is this synth in the arrangement? What frequency spectrum does it have to fill? And that's a good transition of like, you're thinking about frequencies now. And yeah. is it covering the low end? Is it covering the low mid, the high mid, the high end? 
these are all things that come into play as you're tracking each part so that they don't step all over each other. Yeah. We talk about common things like kick drums and, and bass sounds a lot, but it can even go further than that. Like let's say that you have a Moog playing a bass part. Mm -hmm. Do you even need to have like an electric bass on top of that? Or can the Moog carry it by itself? Right? So th those are decisions where that, now the electric bass, it, it doesn't need to play here. Or maybe the Moog comes out and comes back in at the chorus or the B section or whatever. Mm -hmm. And those things will kind of keep it going and you don't end up with that sludgy, tubby bottom end where it's just a simple of an arrangement thing to fix as opposed to trying to get in there with EQ and carve out frequencies and things. Right. And the same so, can be held true for when you're thinking about songs, especially if they're led by vocals, you have to be conscious of certain instruments not to be in the way of your lead vocalist. Now, if your lead vocalist is a baritone, you're probably going to be more worried about things in the low mids and bass and those sorts of things. If your vocalist is much more of a standard vocalist, you're going to be worried about whether or not the guitar is in the way or the synth is in the way if it's a high or middle of the keyboard position. Those things become important factors to how the arrangement works in terms of the vocal. If it's an instrumental, what instrument is currently leading what section? That also becomes important as to how yeah. the other instruments will affect the way that comes out in the mix. Mm, yeah. We can sometimes get fairly extreme. You mentioned here like dialing in guitar tones and things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and it can feel counterintuitive as a guitar player when you're recording something and you have a sound that just sounds like really, really weird in isolation. Mm -hmm. But you know where it's going to sit in the track. It's actually going to sound absolutely fine because you don't clash up against the vocal or you're not messing with the low end too much. And there's um, an example that I want to bring up here, Def Leppard's Hysteria. I think the majority of the guitars there were done using Rockmans, right? the, the old like Rockman line boxes. Those things right? were great sounding though. They were just like magical sounding little units. Right. But they're hardly like giant guitar sounds. Oh, hell now no. that this is not a, a, a giant guitar record per se, the way we think of it. There's a million guitars on there. But that is a really good study also from how to write parts and how to arrange things and, and make it happen. And I think that that's a huge sort of Mott Lang thing, right? Where you kind of just, every single part is thought of and has its place in the mix. And you're not recording stuff with giant Marshall stacks if you're just gonna hear a sliver of a sound. Sure. You know, so get it right at the source. Well, and that also harkens back to a conversation I once had with CJ, whom we've had on the podcast before, in mm -hmm. that most people would likely end up being shocked at knowing what the original sound source was for their favorite distorted or clean guitar tone is. And while we're pointing out guitar tones, this is the same for any instrument. CJ mm. being primarily a keyboard player, he could say the exact same thing about any keyboard sounds that he's ever used. Sometimes they're very minimalist, so your keyboard sound's gonna be much fuller. But if it's inside a dense arrangement, chances are it's getting narrowed and notched out so that it fits in that arrangement. Absolutely. Same thing that, for drums and bass and 
orchestral instruments of all kinds. It doesn't matter what it is. Everything needs to have some sort of space. And hopefully it's not stepping all over everything else unless you're going for a mishmash of sound. Right. That's one of my pet peeves, though, with especially with like software sense. Uh-huh. It's a little bit different with hardware world, although the factory presets might be that way. When you dial up presets or you see a demo of a soft synth, it has that Vegas casino sound to it. Everything is happening. It's huge and it's modulating everywhere. That's really impressive while you're showing what synth is capable of. Mm-hmm. Good luck trying to use that in a track, right. right? Unless that's your main part and you're just doing something. But chances are it's just too much. You can't use it. There are manufacturers I won't mention. There's one synth. I don't own it. You own it. Oh that is a tremendous sounding keyboard. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, how are you going to use that? Are you going to use it just by itself? You know. <laughs> so that's part of the arrangement and taking stuff out. One thing that we mentioned couple of episodes ago when we were talking about guitars, and we're both guitar players, so it's a lot of guitar talk here, but you and I differ a little bit when it comes to multi-mic'd guitars, mm-hmm. where to make stuff sit better, I am not afraid to like get rid of one mic if, I, if I'm provided with like multi-mic'd tracks, mm-hmm. just because it's just easier to fit in there. And it might just be that just removing a certain mic thins the guitar sound out enough where it doesn't require a whole lot more in the track. I don't disagree with that. I did that recently on a bunch of remixes I did myself. See, there you go. Layering stuff and thinking about when to drop out does wonders for the arrangement, I think. And it's just a little bit of forethought, kind of like when you're recording, putting on your producer's hat, stepping back and thinking, how can I make decisions that's going to affect the mix? And if you do that, I think you notice that your mixes are just going to come together a lot faster because they're more focused to whatever needs to be there. Sure. So the simple, quick answer to all of this after all of this stuff that we've just mentioned. One, what instrumentation? Two, what instrumentation per part? Three, what are the frequencies of those instrumentations that are being used? Think those things through before you even track everything, and it could make your mixing a heavenly experience over a hellish experience. Yes. And it's the song that always wins, not the guitar part. That, right? Generally speaking, <laughs> right. that is very true. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to our variety finds. Chris, what have you got today? I am a huge Lenny Kravitz fan. Mm-hmm. I just heard his new single as of the recording of this, TK421, which you actually informed me where it actually is a reference to, which is funny by itself. (laughs) But (laughs) kick-ass tune. And it just happens to be that a lot of the things that we talked about today, I think is on great display in this track. Great arrangement and... Lenny just is one of those dudes that he can get away with just about anything, but he always seems to do something really cool. Not unlike Prince, right? Everything just sounds cool. Right. I have to go with a musical example this Friday, and it's Lenny Kravitz's TK421. So before you give us your Friday find, Mm -hmm. what is TK421? It's a stormtrooper. And more specifically, the stormtrooper who was asked to guard the Millennium Falcon 
in the first Star Wars movie from 1977. TK421, why are you not at your post? <laughs> there you go. Nerd alert. Exactly. Jeremy, what's your Friday find? I'm going with something that is guitar-related, mainly because a few days ago I was messing around with coming up with more creative guitar sounds than I could possibly shake a stick at, and I used a plug-in that both you and I have called Crush Station from Eventide. Oof. My Friday find is Crush Station. And the reason for that is is that it is a distortion plug-in. And I had never really played around with it a whole lot until the other day. And I started playing around with it going, holy cow, this thing is really damn cool <laughs> for creating distortion parts. So much so that I came up with this really crazy, what sounds like the edge of a boombox stereo on the verge of dying with the speakers blown out. Who sense. doesn't want that sound? Who doesn't want that sound? <laughs> I came up with this chord progression that makes that particular sound extremely cool. Then I thought, oh, man, and I wrote a little song piece around it, and I'm going to finish the arrangement of that song in the next week or so. However, that being said, Crush Station is my choice this week for awesome. cool can't really go wrong sounds. with any of those, like, H9 plugins like even no, they're, they're all, they're all amazing yeah yeah while we've got your attention we ask that you go to inside the recording studio.com and sign up for our mailing list you'll need to be on our email list to be eligible for any future giveaways and we'll make sure that you don't miss any episodes of this incredible podcast send us an email at gold star g-o-l-d-s-t-a-r at inside the recording studio with the word arrange and you'll get something cool back in your inbox if you have a topic or a suggestion for chris and i to explain in a future episode like today's contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode with that i'll say see you next week thanks for listening everybody talk to you later jody 